Hello, and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative. My name is Lauren LaGrasso. I'm your host, and this show is meant to help you claim the word creative, make creativity the filter for your life, take fear out of the driver's seat, and step more fully into the essence of who you are and really claim your right to take up space in this world and proclaim the dreams that you have on your heart. Today's creative check-in is about setting yourself up for success and making yourself feel like a professional. I was going to talk about a completely different thing, but I just want to share a small thing with you that really changed how I was feeling in this moment. I was feeling exhausted. I was feeling like I wasn't ready to do this. Like I waited too long to record this. Now it's too late at night. And I usually, this is incredibly tiny, but I usually hold the microphone up to my mouth rather than going to the trouble of getting a mic stand and placing it properly and like I would if I was producing the podcast for somebody else. And tonight I was like, you know what, Lauren, why don't you just set yourself up for success and get the damn mic stand? It takes one minute extra. It will make your hands free so you can talk like the Italian you were born to be. And it was such a simple thing, but it immediately changed my mood and my opinion of what this recording was going to be like before I was feeling slouchy and blah. And then once I had the mic stand in front of me, it was just a reminder like, hey, yeah, you might be recording on your couch right now, but you're still a professional, so get it together. And whatever the equivalent of a mic stand is for you and your creative path, whether it's you setting aside time to write, like an actual date to write for yourself, treating it like a job, or getting extra dressed up for a performance rather than wearing whatever clothes you wore to work, or like creating some sort of vision board for your business of like where you want your business to be and acting as if it's already true. There's probably so many different iterations of this, but treating yourself like you're a professional causes you to step up your game and actually act like a professional. So find your own version of the mic stand, honey buns, and get on that road to glory. And now I want to tell you a little bit about our amazing guest. His name is Jeffrey Masters, and he is a host, producer, writer, and actor. He's best known for his hit podcast, LGBTQ&A, being the director of podcasts at Pride Media, and for being featured in outlets like The Advocate, BuzzFeed, The New York Times, USA Today, People Magazine, and many more. I wanted to have Jeffrey on the show because he has great advice on the importance of seeking discomfort in order to grow. And he's a brilliant example of the magic that can happen when you combine creativity with activism. On a personal note, he's also been an incredible supporter on my creative journey as a musician. And on a human and career level, he's someone I admire deeply and learn from all the time, and I know you will too. From this conversation, you'll learn the benefits of walking through open doors and taking the long way around, how to make flexibility for your creative pursuits within your full-time job, why you must study your craft and do the work, and the power of asking tough questions. Oh, and before we get into it, please note, Jeffrey is located in New York City, and we recorded this remotely on this app called Zencaster, so it's a little bit different audio quality than you're used to. And you're also going to hear some of the sounds of the city. So enjoy those little extra honks and let it add to the ambiance of our beautiful conversation. So without further ado, here he is, Jeffrey Masters. When you go back and trace the lines of your life, what was the inciting incident of your creative journey? 
You know, I don't know that there was one like inciting incident per se, but I do remember all throughout my early childhood and my teen years just trying out every different artistic like medium possible from like drawing with colored pencils and like a piece of paper like at friends' houses to trying to do like clay pottery at school to chorus to like everything possible just trying to be like there's this artistic like being inside of me but like how was it going to be like best expressed if that makes sense and do you remember when you did have that moment where you're like oh this is the thing like what was that first thing for you like I loved choir <laughs> so much fun yeah it was I think it like it satisfied that like performance gene that had in me too and um I think that I liked the the ritual of choir of like going to rehearsal and putting on a show and then your parents came to watch the show um which luckily like mine did and I think that like where I was saying like drawing with colored pencils like there's not a the ritual of like a like displaying of that you just like finish your drawing they move on so i think like i really loved like the the performance and like all that stuff of choir and how is that reflected in what you do today creatively i mean i host uh the most successful podcast of all time and no just a joke yes you do honey buns <laughs> um, yes I, I host a podcast and, like it's one of the most successful podcasts though in its arena yeah correct? it's one of the biggest lgbtq podcasts which uh is nice to say because um, I think for the first couple of years I um I like hesitated from saying that. I will also say that. Why do you think you hesitated from saying um, that? I, and how did you get over that fear, that like feeling of like, oh, I don't want to be too big? Yeah. You know? Well, I hesitate. Well, first, of all, I guess for the first couple of years it wasn't true, <laughs> but um, when it became <laughs> true, I think that like I come from a very big family of like you don't brag that's really just unattractive quality mm. however i think that there's a really a big sense of in life you need to toot your own horn if you want somebody else to toot it for you and so like me getting bigger and better accolades i had to really position myself to to get those if i just said like oh i host a podcast you roll your eyes but if i say i host a podcast and it's really successful you're like oh really and so i don't want to tell people i host a podcast and have them roll my eyes so i had to start telling them that it was pretty big yeah and i mean that's a really tough thing to get over is like your early childhood programming i think it's something we all struggle with for the rest of our lives growing up italian catholic i definitely had that in me too where i was like taught to like not brag, be humble, you know, like put the spotlight on other people. And so I'm curious, like how you mentally overcame that and your advice for other people who are in a similar scenario, because I agree with you, there's no chance that our work is going to get seen if we don't tell people about it and we don't tell them the accolades. Yeah. Well, I think that I learned um, how to get over that within the work of my podcast. So I host a LGBTQ interview podcast and we talk about people's lives. And I studied the art of interview because I wanted to have like the best conversations possible. And one of the things I learned really early on is that we are afraid of feeling uncomfortable and so we will avoid certain topics and conversation to avoid being uncomfortable but those are often the moments that make for the most interesting interview and so it's like sitting in that uncomfortable feeling and knowing that it's okay to feel uncomfortable because we're talking about someone's dead mom and that would be uncomfortable and so don't run away from that but like run towards it 
That's something I really noticed about your interview style because I listen to quite a few of your podcasts to prepare for this interview. And especially, I always get afraid to say this man's name because it's um, it looks like a name that I know and it's not pronounced that way. But Pete Buttigieg, <laughs> is that how you yeah. say it? Buttigieg. I was so blown away by your interview with him because you kept pressing him. He wasn't giving you a direct answer on how he was going to represent the needs of America in places where it was literally illegal to be gay. And so you kept pressing him until he gave you an answer. And I was so blown away by that. And I, it also made me think you must be someone who, now that you are comfortable in those uncomfortable situations, is really good at setting boundaries. Is that yeah. true? Well, I, I think like two things of what you just said. I am, I know how to set boundaries, but also I have done 150 interviews around podcasts. So I've developed skills, but also I've done every single one of them face to face. And so that allows me to to push people a little bit harder to to ask the uncomfortable questions because they can look me in the eyes and they see that I'm there trying to bring out the best in them. They see this like really like trustworthy face, to be completely honest. And I really cultivate that in-person feeling because like you said, Pete Buttigieg, I, I could push him. But the other aspect of that is that you can push politicians and elected leaders a lot harder than you would if I was interviewing you or just an actor. If an actor is giving me a dodgy question about some movie, it doesn't actually matter. But if somebody wants to be the president of the United States, that type of interview really requires a lot more research on my point, my part, and a lot more of pushing back when he's saying something that doesn't make sense or something that's not specific. I really enjoy those interviews because that really is, it's so challenging and it really pushes me to have to be like on the top of my A game. I love that you talk about how you studied interviewing because I feel like a big mistake that people make is, I mean, whether it's interviewing for their podcast or going out and doing stand up or writing music is that they have a natural skill and then they just rest on those laurels. Like, I'm sure you are always good at being an interesting, engaging personality on air because you are naturally, but you didn't just rest on that. You went and you studied it. And I'm curious, like, why that was so important to you and how it directly influenced the trajectory of your podcast. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think that I get really frustrated with people who start a podcast and just because they can turn on a microphone and they can talk in front of a microphone and they can upload that to iTunes, they think that they've done enough where there's almost a million podcasts. And for me, it's like, I don't want to create just another podcast. I don't want to create something just for the sake of it. I have really high expectations and I have a high standard. And I didn't realize that that was that unique actually until I started working more and more in the industry and consulting with more and more podcasts where I, so LGBTQ&A, my podcast, is a weekly interview podcast um, of L, different LGBTQ people, artists, actors, authors, politicians. And I, I have so many people that think you have a weekly podcast that just is once a week. It's just like one hour of conversation. Like that is the smallest job I've LOL. Heard. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. LOL. 100%. And then after I'm done banging my head against the wall, I like have to tell them how much work goes into it and how much work went into it for the first three years to like create good conversation. I think it's so offensive to bring someone on a podcast to pull an hour or two out of their day to say, so Lauren, how's your week going? 
It's like the biggest waste of time, but also like it, I don't know why listeners would want to hear that because I'm not somebody like Amy Schumer where like she could do that because you're listening to Amy Schumer's podcast because you're a fan of Amy Schumer. You're listening to my podcast because I'm interviewing the most interesting people in the world. You're not listening to it actually for Jeffrey Masters and that's okay. You know, I'm not at that point yet and that's fine, but um, I just have a big I have a high standard. I don't want to put anything out into the world that has my name on it that I'm not 100% proud of. Right. And I love that with every interview, you're seeking to give takeaway because that's a big thing for me too. Like I am racking my brain every time I study a person to figure out how I can use their story to give somebody something that will help their own journey. I don't know. For me personally, it's been like, overwhelming me recently because I'm like, how do I make this as good as possible and give people as much as possible? Like, how do you stay in the area of being of service and giving takeaway without letting that desire to be of service overwhelm the conversation? I think that you just have to trust yourself. I think that you need to work your butt off, but at a certain time, you need to trust that you've done enough work in general I like, like I said, I studied the art of interviewing. I studied podcasts in general. I studied podcasts across different forms so that, that I wanted to stand out in terms of different queer podcasts. But I also am not so naive to think that non queer people don't have things to offer. And so, like, um, ESPN 30 for 30 is an amazing podcast. I'm not a sports fan and I'm so impressed by them, by their whole production, but also I'm impressed that me, a non sports fan, can still be compelled by their content. And that is really what I strive for too, that I I don't want this just to be a a queer show that if you're straight, you can't understand what we're talking about. And I think that that is a big issue I find in queer content. And this is parables across all content where that it's either made just for queer people or it's made queer content for straight straight people. It's not interesting for queer people. And so every interview I'm doing, I'm trying to walk that line of engagement that um, it'll be engaging content for both audiences. But yeah, to be honest with you, I just, I trust myself because I put in so much work originally. And so it might, I think like the goal is to make it look effortless eventually. And I promise you it's not effortless. I still work my butt off for every single interview, but it looks a lot easier from the outside because I know what work to do. I know you can work your butt off doing like unproductive work that's not conducive to success. But after four years of this, I've learned um, and, and more years of other podcasts, I've learned how to do like the right kind of work, if that makes sense. Right. How to work smarter, not harder or hard, but like also as smart as possible. So you're not putting your energy into places where there's going to be no return. Yeah. And also looking at looking at the work I do and saying, what is a waste of time? I could spend 24 hours preparing for one interview and I can also spend six hours. I could spend three hours and I think it'll be the same quality of work. So it's like, do I have 24 hours in my work week to spend on one interview? No. So like, let's speed it up, Jeffrey. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting too, because sometimes the ones that I prep for the longest, like I find myself getting lost. Whereas like when I just go with my gut, it creates a better result. So totally. Oh, and then also what you were saying earlier about like being stressed out about, um, is this good? What's the takeaway? I think Mm -hmm. you and I have a very common thing where it's an interview podcast and there's another person involved. And so you can do as much work as possible, but if I'm having a bad day, it's still going to be maybe a bad podcast and that's not about you. And so it's like letting yourself off the hook for that too, because you can only bring so much to the table for the podcast. 
Right. And you know, one thing I talk about a lot on the show is how to go from the idea portion to execution. And that's something you clearly did with the podcast very successfully. But I'm curious how you went from the idea of LGBTQ&A to actually executing it. Like what was that process like? How long did it take? And how did you know it was an idea worth fighting for? Yeah, let me take the second half of that first. It was an idea worth fighting for because it was an idea that did not exist yet on iTunes. Those are becoming more and more increasingly rare to find. But I wanted a interview podcast to interview queer and trans people because other interview podcasts would have you know, a queer person on every year. And that wasn't enough for me. And so I went out speaking in that podcast and it didn't exist. And I thought that was like the dumbest thing ever because it's not a, it's not an original idea, right? I didn't like I didn't create this idea of interviewing gay people. <laughs> and so part of me knew that it was such a good idea because it was so simple, but it wasn't out there. And I thought that if I don't do this, somebody else will. And I had enough experience and connections to make it work. And so from me deciding I'm going to do this to putting out the first podcast, I think it was maybe three months. I don't know if that's like a long or short timeline, but I picked that timeline because I was doing consistent work along the way in terms of naming the podcast, in terms of booking my first guests, in terms of stalking Ross Matthews in the hallway at the studio that he would be (laughs) on my podcast and debut with a celebrity person. But also I think really, it's really important is to tell people about your project because if you are embarrassed about it or keeping it close to your chest, then that is a that's a problem. Maybe it's a problem either with the idea it's bad or with your confidence. And if your confidence isn't there, then it's never going to take you where you want to go. And so I start telling people about it, and they I got positive feedback from them as well. Like, oh, that's a really great idea. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And then I hit them. <laughs> but um, and so I think telling people about it also creates accountability. And so. Three months later, when I'm debuting the first episode of this podcast, then people are like, oh my God, you've been talking about this. I can't wait to hear it. So then it makes them want to be engaged. But also it's the accountability of if I was talking about this podcast for three months and then never did it, I think that embarrassment really like pushed me into making the podcast like a reality. Right. So you would talk about it. You asked for help. You gave it a proper incubation period and you got all the resources in line. And when it was ready, you put it out. That sounds like a good trajectory and a good piece of advice for anyone who's like working to get their idea out there. It's also not rocket science, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like create a to-do list and like by the end of the first week, like have done something. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, your show right away started gaining traction. It grew pretty quickly and it's been featured in almost every major publication you can think of, including the New York Times. Outside of having incredible content, what were some of the tactics you took to bring eyes and ears to the show in the beginning? Yeah, I think that the quality of content is just like 50% of it only. I think that I had this hole in the market that I really was able to exploit because I didn't have a lot of competitors and that was transformational. Um, Just by the nature of it being a queer podcast, the queer podcast world is relatively amateur compared to the rest of the podcast world. So if I was to create a politics podcast, I have no earthly idea how that could ever break through. But for a queer podcast, there just were not a lot of us. And then also I brought the celebrity appeal to it. I really, I don't want it to make it a celebrity only podcast, but celebrities bring in viewers, right? And so 
I have like not a lot of Twitter followers, but I get, I mentioned Ross Matthews. Ross, Ross Matthews has half a million. And so when I have three episodes in iTunes and he tweets out a link to it saying, this is one of my favorite interviews I've done, people take notice because if ex name Joe Schmo, who is gay, but you've never heard of, tweets it out to his 200 followers, it's not going to get anywhere. And so it was a combination of celebrities drive more viewers. I also, you know, it's an LGBTQ interview podcast. A lot of like queer media says they're for LGBTQ people, but they will service primarily like white gay men. And so right away, anybody in the industry can look at my guest list and see that it wasn't just white gay men. And that really made their eyes perk up and said, huh, this is something that's different. And they took note of it. In terms of press connections, I, at the time, was living in Los Angeles, and I had a lot of people who worked for different outlets. And so the thing about journalists are that they're all overworked, and for things that don't matter, they don't want to spend a lot of time on. They can be really lazy. I don't want to say all journalists are lazy, but there's a lot of lazy journalists out there. I know, because I sometimes am one. And so (laughs) when my friend at USA Today, never told this story before, when my friend at USA Today heard about my podcast... She emailed her friend, like, I think he like worked next to her at USA Today at the desk and said, hey, you do the podcast pick of the week every week, right? And the girl was like, yeah, do you have one to recommend? And she's like, yes, here's one called LGBTQ&A. They just interviewed Asia Kate Dillon, the non-binary star of Billions. And that person's like, oh my God, awesome. And they wrote about it. Wow. Yeah. So it's like using personal connections like that. But also we live in a really a virtue signaling world where my podcast has LGBTQ in the title. And so it really allowed USA Today to write about a LGBTQ podcast and like check that off the box because they are also concerned about diversity. And so it really just like did the homework for that. Right. And when you would go ahead and pitch, because did you ever do the pitches yourself? Like, would you write people that you knew and say, hey, this is a podcast. This is an episode I did. Here is like a headline. What do you think? Did you do that, first of all? Yes. Oh, yeah. So there's two ways that I got pressed. One was, Mm -hmm. hey, write about my podcast. It's fantastic. The other one was, hey, I interviewed um, Laverne Cox, and she had breaking news, and she said this, and then it's like right about this specific moment in the podcast. That was less helpful for me, to be completely honest. And that didn't bring viewers. However, that really helped my writing career. So that when I was getting other jobs, I was able to say like, hey... I, my work has been featured here, or I wrote this article for this place because of my podcast. And so everyone's obsessed with like, how do I make money off a podcast? No one's obsessed with how do I make a good podcast? They just want to know how do I make money off of it? And for me, like for the first two years when I was not making cash from it, it's like I was getting press hits around the world. I was getting my name as like an author in different um, outlets around the world. I was getting paid to speak at events. I was paying paid to moderate panels. And I was getting paid from all these indirect means that had nothing to do with advertising. What do you think does make a good podcast? Like what are the components in your opinion? That is such a hard and easy question. <laughs> I get asked it all the time. So I'm curious to hear what you say. That is so funny. Um, yeah. I think it'd be easier to say like what is it makes a bad podcast, honestly. Okay, shoot. Okay, let's start there. Um, I think that a bad podcast has no purpose or point. If you and I start a podcast to talk about our favorite movies, like I think I would say like, what's the point? And why would anybody who doesn't know us be interested? A lot that I guess that's the point. A lot of people who um, 
create podcasts are creating it for like their own friends. And um, I think you didn't answer the question, why would somebody who doesn't know me want to listen to this? And for yours, like, because they're going to like unleash their inner creativity. They're going to learn something new about like, uh, about like helping improving their entire lives. For me, you're going to hear a story from somebody that maybe you've read about, maybe you haven't, and hear like a side of them you've heard before. But a lot of podcasts, I think, don't have a point or they just waste your time. Um, I think that people also, they mimic other big podcasts, but they don't re- recognize that like those are outliers. So for example, Mark Marin talks for like 10 to 20 minutes before every interview. And that is something that only Mark Marin can get away f- with. But people think that, oh, that's how you podcast. Right. What I love about yours is you keep it so brief in the beginning. Like I could learn from that. I have a hard time with brevity. And I think the Ah. greatest thing about you is you tell the full story in like a minute and then you get right into the interview. And it's uh, it's something that's really admirable. I really appreciate that. I work really hard to make sure that my intros are as concise as possible. And also, um, again, I don't want to waste your time. So I don't need to like list out people's like entire resumes i don't need to list out their entire like list of accolades because one you either know it or two it doesn't matter so it's like you know pete Buttigieg is running for president and today we talk about these three things you're gonna love it let's hear it yeah yeah (laughs) i'm gonna start studying you more so that i can learn brevity um but i want to get back to your path a little bit because I was watching this video you did for Logo a few years ago, and you talked about when you were not yet out, you would try to, quote unquote, not walk gay or dress gay. And I'm wondering if during that time in your life, like, how did repressing your sexuality in that way affect your creativity? Like, did you feel like you couldn't be fully expressive in whatever you're doing in your creative path as well? Yeah, absolutely. I felt like I, I think like not appearing gay was like a primary focus. And so that takes so much brain power. And it also, it inhibits creativity because you're also like um, managing and clocking your creativity to make sure it doesn't like add or subtract from your like queer reading. That makes sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because if, if you express yourself in a certain way, it could, in your mind, out you, correct? Yeah. I mean, and yeah, like by profession, I am a, I'm a podcast host who also does like on camera hosting. It's all about me and my personality. And so like when I was really worried about my like peering gay, I was like closing off bits of my personality because it was all like people thought I was gay based on my voice or my, they always called me super animated. Mm. And so I really like cut down on being animated. And so really like you're like trimming down your personality, which when you're a host or a personality like that, you want to like bring your entire self to it. I, I think that like I fail as a podcast host when I meet somebody and they're like, oh, I cannot believe how funny and like fun you are. And I'm like, that means I'm not doing my job. <laughs> really? I feel like that sometimes when you're funny and fun, you're disarming people and making them feel comfortable. So I, I wouldn't take it that way. I think your comedy is actually one of your greatest gifts. And, you know, as much as you can lean into it, you should. Thank you. I, I love you cite that because also that probably this is like my least funny interview of all time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm being very serious right now too. So, you know, takes two to tango, honey. But I, I'm curious. So like when you did come out, how did that affect your creative path and your profession? You know, I think that everything like works together. So like I moved to Los Angeles and 
mean like seven years in no that's not true like five years in I started doing hosting a lot more I started this podcast I started volunteering for the Trevor Project which is National Suicide Hotline I really embraced the queer parts of my life and I think that I did that specifically to like accept that side of me more if that makes sense it inhibited creativity sure but also it pushed me into this queer field where like in certain circles like I'm a queer expert you know I can talk about representation for like queer and trans people all the time and I do that on stage like continuously for like things that I'm hosting or just on panels and I don't know that I would have pursued that as in depth had I not been trying to like become cool with it myself. Right. And you know, something I wanted to ask you about was that because I wonder, do you like being a guru for LGBTQ issues? Like, do you mind when people ask you questions? I've heard a lot of people in communities that have been disenfranchised say like, it's not my job to educate you. And I do get that point of view. In my opinion, like if I were to be approached by someone who is formerly misogynistic and now genuinely was curious about like the female experience, I'd be happy to talk with them. But I'm wondering, like, how does it strike you? How do you handle the pressures of that? And do you like it? Yeah, I really struggle with people who say it's not my job to educate you. I think that when you're in the public eye, you don't always have that choice. I have built up a really big following on my podcast and they listen to it in part to be educated, not fully, but like a part of that is to learn about these different like experiences. And um, I think that it would be really disrespectful, but also I, I, I tell people I'm the guy, in my friend group that you can ask any question to. And I tell people like, ask me the questions you're afraid to ask anybody else. Because I, I think that maybe like for like marginalized people that like, people of color get these questions a lot more and like maybe on the daily. And so there are certain struggles, let's say for like that, that come with the trans experience. And I'd rather you ask me a question that is maybe offensive and we'll talk about it. And you have to like be embarrassed in front of a trans person, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. And I'm given that if someone is in your position where they are quite knowledgeable about their personal experience as a person in the LGBTQ or any other community that people are curious about, what is the best way to approach someone's curiosity? I think like, the first thing to do is just to like literally like follow queer trans people on Twitter and just like read what they say. And then start reading different articles by these different marginalized groups, whatever group it is. And I think that really taking time to to listen and learn and not engage or not to argue, just to listen. And if something you um, you disagree with is said, that's okay. But just don't engage right away. I think like the biggest thing to do is like shut up and listen. Yes. Yeah. And you know, the other thing I've been saying lately is choose curiosity over condemnation. It's so easy to condemn someone as being bad right now. And there's like a whole like whole movement of people who are like just dying to be right. But instead, why don't you try listening and approach everyone with genuine curiosity and see what you can maybe learn? Yeah, absolutely. And I think to like approach people the way you'd want to be approached. So like, 
I mean, that, that is just something that I've learned with my podcast too, is I ask a lot of questions that people would deem rude or you're not supposed to ask those in interviews, but like I've built up trust with my guests, but also I'm asking always from a place of curiosity and like non-judgment. And so that is why we're able to have those conversations. I mean, that, that, I mean, that brings me to like a point that I like think about all the time is how like nobody knows how they come across. And so like... Maybe you're asking questions and genuinely are curious, but also maybe you have phrased it in such a fucking bitchy way that <laughs> the person is so offended, but you don't know you've done that. What's an example of a question you've asked that people would think was rude, but you did it in such a way that it came across as kind? I mean, this is not an exact example, but um, I had the YouTuber Gigi Gorgeous on. And she's like one of the most famous queer YouTubers in the world. She started out, uh, her username was Greg Gorgeous. And then she came out as trans, became Gigi Gorgeous. And then she came out as a lesbian. I mean, she's come out so many times, which I like, I love that she has like, she laughs about that. But um, she, she married a woman last year. And when she came out as a lesbian, I wanted, and she previously only dated men before that. I wanted to know like how and why did she think she was a lesbian and not bisexual? And, like, I, I, yeah. I think, like, yeah. I think that's, that's a, that's a, hor- that's a weird question to say. Like you, I was wondering the exact same thing when, cause I listened to that interview this morning and I was so glad that you asked that because it's like, I was thinking like, well, why didn't she just test the waters a little bit first before she's like declaring it? And yeah, yeah it's such brilliant. a strong statement to be like, mm-hmm. I, I fell in love with a woman. I'm now a lesbian. I think that takes take such like a strong will to know that about yourself. And I want to know about that. You know, I, I don't actually care how she identifies. I don't, I, I don't actually care how anybody identifies, but I, I do want to know why and not to judge them to say, no, actually, I think you are bisexual. Fuck you. But it's like, <laughs> no, like if you are a lesbian, like I think that's fascinating. And so like that question is, a, um, if she didn't trust me, could have really been taken the wrong way. Right. And you have to build up a certain rapport to get to that level. Another guest you had on that I'm obsessed with something she said. You had Ivy Bottini. Is that the way you say it? Yeah. Ivy Bottini. Okay. So she gave this amazing quote about how people in the LGBTQ community have had to think outside the box for so long to keep themselves alive. And that's something that the straight world has never had to do. And she says that because of this, it's in your genes to do amazing things. And she's hopeful. And to me, I think that's one of the best quotes I've ever heard about creativity and turning adversity into purpose. So how do you think that's been true in your own life? And what are some other examples from the community that inspire you? Yeah, I love Ivy. I mean, mean, talking to her is amazing. She's 93 years old. She's such a badass. Oh my gosh. I mean, I think that like that quote relates exactly to what we were saying about Gigi Gorgeous and just like staying curious, which you were talking about. I think that being queer and talking to so many queer and trans people has just allowed me to keep my mind open because I'm never bringing somebody in the podcast to argue about their identity. I'm never going to challenge anyone's identity because at the end of the day, what, what gender you go to bed with or what gender you go to bed as, it doesn't actually affect my life in either way. And so I think that like being queer and seeing what sort of possibilities exist for the world and seeing how many social norms we have that are not based on anything that we need to continue in the world that I get to like choose for myself what to follow or not follow, which just like radically changed everything about my life. 
And, you know, speaking of your own path, when I first met you, you were pursuing acting pretty hardcore in addition to hosting. And I'm, are you still doing acting? Like, is that still on the creative palette for you? So I was doing acting for a while in LA and at a certain point you need to go like follow whatever fire is burning. And at a certain point I was doing small bullshit films and then the New York times to write about me for hosting for my podcast. And so like, that's a very clear arrow from the universe. Right. Um, It'd be like, Hmm, I don't know what I should be doing. Oh, I should be doing this. It's like, you got to go what's with what's working. Yeah. So I recently moved to New York city two weeks ago. A, A big portion of that is because I signed with a big agency for acting. And so now that my hosting career is kind of like on a really lovely, stable track, and I have so much free time, um, I am going to be getting back into it actually. And so, um, yeah, I'm really excited Yay. about that. <laughs> so then how do you balance all your different creative loves? Like, I think that's great advice that when one fire is happening, like go like toward the fire, I guess yeah. in, this, in this case, go toward the fire, but keep the other flame burning because it's probably going to come back. But like, how are you now working toward balancing everything? Because you've also got like a big time job as a podcast director. So what is your advice for creative balance? Well, I, I think first of all, I am a bad person to get advice for that because I have a lot of endurance, to be completely honest. I have absolutely no problem working into the night and waking up early to keep working. And my body and my brain are it's just able to do that. So that's the one caveat. But I think that you need to do what, you love. And so for me, the last four years been this podcast and it's been working on that. And now I can slow down a bit since I have created momentum for that. And it can like, it's a little bit more um, self-sustaining, if that makes sense, to give me free time to do other things. The thing I recommend in terms of balance is like work your ass off during the week and then take at least one day in the weekend completely off to recharge and not like open your email. That is my best advice for everybody. That's great advice. And then, you know, it's like a mistake that we can easily make when we've got a new business or a new creative project to just keep going every day, but then eventually you're going to get sick. That's just what happens. Exactly. And because we are creative people who can like work from anywhere, most of us with our laptops, you know, we're not going to our jobs that are nine to fives. We can work from anywhere. The issue with that is that we never stop working. Right. (laughs) I don't take vacations and that's a problem. And so I'm really trying this year to really like build time off into my schedule where I'm not doing these things. Uh, You mentioned like acting. Yes, I I have a big acting agent now. I'm really excited to see where that goes. I also have a book agent. I'm working on a book (gasps) proposal for different things. So I'm working on a thousand things. Yeah, thanks. I'm excited. I'm, I'm working on a thousand things. And it's just making sure that I'm doing things that I want to do because I will stay up until midnight working on this book proposal because I love it. I don't want to, and because I I, genu- I love writing too. Like I, I have a lot of like um, I'm curious about a lot of things, and I find that that's lucky because there's some people who are like I don't know what my passion is. How do I find it? And my advice for you is LOL, good luck. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> well, you know the advice I give on like my passion, or I like to look at it as like an overarching purpose. So, did you go to acting school? I did. I have a BFA. Okay, cool. Yes, honey, me too. Yeah. So, you know, in acting school, we get taught about the super objective, which is like the one main thesis statement of a character's life. And so instead of overwhelming yourself and thinking about like, what's my passion? What's my purpose in regard to a job? 
I advise people to look at an overarching purpose that everything else can feed into. It takes a little bit of pressure off of like, I have to have like one job soulmate for the rest of my life. And then it takes it into this, like, it could be a million things, like what you're doing. Like, what would you say your spine is? What is your super objective in your life? Right now, like my big goal, my work is like reduced down to is like telling the stories of the LGBTQ community um, and telling stories that you haven't heard or like uplifting voices that you need to hear about. But also like in the example of Ivy Boutini, preserving stories from our history that are not being told. So it's all about the community and telling that story. I think that like the next phase of my career will be like working, to be honest, like on my own story. And that's why I have all these like different like agents and like like people of my team that are like helping that cause because and that's just like one more clear person, I guess, if you're like you know, adding into the list. Focusing more on me. How does it feel to have the spotlight shining on you after so long of shining it on other people? It's funny because I am an on-camera person. I do host a podcast, but everything is about other people. So I'm actually not in love with being the center of attention for the sake of being in the center of attention. Like I'm ne- I'm never gonna be like an Instagram influencer. Like it doesn't interest me to like shoot a thousand photos one weekend and like parse them out for the year. I don't know. I don't want to drag influencers. It's just like not me. I, I don't I don't have that desire to like be the center of attention, even though a lot of my work, if I am successful at it, will make me the center of attention. So I know that what I'm saying doesn't actually add up. When I said I moved to New York City, before we start talking this interview, you told me that you didn't even know I had moved. And that's because I didn't want to do a big going away party where I was the center of attention. I um it's just like not anything that like fulfills me, if that makes sense. So I kind of just like said goodbye, gave one person a hug and like screwed it. <laughs> That makes sense. I mean, I think what it will probably be like for you in this next phase then is really organically finding out your story and telling it in the same way with the same reverence that you give to these other people, not in a gross way, not in a selfie way, but in a way that shares something of value for people to latch onto and give them hope in their own lives. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that when you said about like finding a non-gross way, that is a big mission of mine because- There's a lot of like self-promotion that really like weirds me the fuck out. Yeah, I love the way you do because that's why I also said humor is your superpower because the way that you promote your very important work is always through a humorous lens. How do you think that's helped people attach to what you're doing? I I think that it makes me stand out because uh, I mean, I also think that if I probably like gave it more self-importance, people would like give me more accolades to be completely honest. I think that I downplay my content. I'm trying to figure that out for the new year because I have interviewed some of the the most important queer people alive today. And I I mean that just like very like just factually. And yet, and I would love more people to celebrate me if I'm being completely honest, but it really makes me uncomfortable to say things like that. And so I do downplay it. That being said, I really reject this feeling um, or this use of social media that says like, just because you can tweet about every thought that goes to your mind doesn't mean you have to. When a big event happens in the world or like a public figure dies, you don't actually have to tweet about it. You know, legally, you're allowed to sit at home or call a friend. And so I, um, I really try to cultivate a place of joy on social media. 
I think that there's so much nastiness, there's so much caps lock screaming on every side. I am very fortunate because I have a platform and I don't need to tweet about the death of a trans woman in Texas because I am creating my entire body of work to like support people like that, to help tell those stories. And so I don't need like the social validation of like you seeing that I tweeted about it and like, like virtue signaling that like I care about trans people, like look at my life work. And I think I'm hopefully that speaks for itself. Right. You know, it's like, you don't have to shout who you are, be who you are, and it will come through beautifully in your everyday life. (laughs) I love that. Yes. (laughs) Something I talk about a lot on the show is a relationship with fear. Like is fear in the driver's seat of your life? Because I think that fear is the root of all evil, but specifically it is definitely the root cause of a lot of people not stepping forward toward a creative life. What's your current relationship with fear and how do you work on not letting it be in the lead? I'm so glad you asked that. So it goes back to two things I said. One, I have practice in my interviews with feeling uncomfortable. And so I have allowed that to cross over into my personal life. If I ask somebody out of the bar and they say no, it doesn't ruin my day because that was always a possibility. And it doesn't stop me from asking somebody out again because that is how it works. That's how dating works, right? <laughs> um, and so I have a lot of practice with my profession of feeling uncomfortable and not letting fear guide my decisions. And so when it comes to fear, I acknowledge it, I, I listen to it, and I don't let it make decisions for me, to be completely honest. How can other people who are crippled by fear right now get into your mindset? Like, is it just practicing it like you did with your podcast, like practice it in little ways in regular life? Absolutely. I think it's practicing in really tiny ways, be it with, with friends, with, with even just like personal things. Like, um, you know, in New York city, I have a friend who is a horrible dancer according to her and she hates dancing and she goes to these, um, auditions for musicals and when they make her dance, she like, just like loses her mind. And I was like, okay, why don't you take a dance class then? <laughs> and she was like, well, because I'm so bad at it, it's just, it makes me so scared. I'm like, yes. And that's the point of a dance class is to get better at it. And so I don't ever want to be in a position where like I have a very concrete thing to do, but I don't want to do it because I'm scared. But also when I said earlier that I have a really high standard for my work, I also have like a work ethic to back it up. And so I'd rather be bad at something but in class or like reading a book about it to get better at it than just scared my whole life because it's going to make my work better. Yeah. And you mentioned reading. You're an avid reader. Lots of great book recommendations on your page. Can I tell you that I never considered myself a reader until I moved to Los Angeles and realized that nobody reads? (laughs) Well, I guess it's good to get inspired by what other... I mean, that's kind of a theme for you, isn't it? Like you see holes in what people aren't doing. You see what people aren't doing and then you fill in the holes. I fill in so many holes. (laughs) Last night, wait, what are you talking about? Um... (laughs) Yeah, I do. I, I, I love to read it. Um, I, I think it's transformed my entire life. And I, I think that it's like also free. Yeah. <laughs> so I recommend. Yeah. I mean, you buy the book and then it's free. It's like, it's a free class. But what have you, have you seen like an exact correlation between a book you've read and a creative exploit? So before I did my podcast, I was interviewing authors and I was just like, 
barreling through books because I wanted those interviews to be good because I saw, you know, looking at the market that most book interviewers start off the interview with the question, so tell me about your book. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I can read the book and then just like have a massive leg up on everybody. So I feel like my entire career is like, I'm getting accolades for doing work that I just think everyone should be doing. Everyone should be reading the book. They're even an author, but they're not. And so like I'm getting the accolades, but everyone else could be doing it. So the connection though that I was making is that when I was reading like 50 books a year, I just saw a massive jump in my writing ability. I became just a substantially better writer. Um, and it shocked me actually when I sat down to write one day. And so it's like, that is such an easy correlation, but reading has just also like opened my mind to different like experiences when I'm interviewing someone who is maybe like a queer Muslim from the middle East, it allows me to not jump to my assumptions. Also like a big issue I see is that, you know, um, I mentioned a queer Muslim from Iran. I meet one person from Iran and I place the entire, I think that everyone from Iran has an exact same experience. You know, you talk to one like gay person on your podcast, you know, everyone has that exact same experience. And so no one has the same experience, but also like reading, talking to people in real life, it showed me that I don't need to make assumptions um, that I used to make in terms of that stuff and things like that. And then speaking of your path, so part of your move was because of the agency, but also because of your role as director of podcasts at Pride Media, or was that not correlated? Everything and more. I'd been, yeah, I'd been in LA for 10 years. That's not true. I've been in LA for almost nine years and I wanted just a change. I think that moving to New York City was like the jolt that my career needed to take it to the next level, if I'm being completely honest. And I have a really big opportunity moving to a new city with this a really established podcast that and it makes people want to like meet with me and email me back. And that is so valuable. And can't put a price tag on that. Yeah. And so I was just personally, like we're talking about fear earlier. I was ready for my next challenge. I just felt, to be completely honest, really complacent in Los Angeles. And it was feeling easy. And I wanted a challenge both professionally and personally. And I'm 30. I am never going to be this um, skinny again. So I want to like take advantage. I'm single. You know, I want to like take advantage of all those things. But also, um, I think that this is like the center of opportunity for like what my career needs for phase two. Yeah. And is your company Pride Media, are they supportive of all these other things you're doing? How did you approach that with them? You know, I tell all my friends, I think everyone who I know who like has creative pursuits are afraid to have a full-time job. And I, in so many jobs, it goes back to me being a hard worker. I've proven time and again that if you are a hard worker and you get your job done, that eventually they will trust you. And then you ask for the flexibility that you need to pursue your other creative pursuits as well as to maintain doing a good job there. And so with the first like three years of my podcast, when I wasn't making money, that's not true. It was like two and a half years in and I got a check from iTunes for $120. <laughs> and so, you know, it was not a really um, advantageous <laughs> position in the beginning, but um, I was working for a company. I was running operations for this entrepreneur and running email marketing and like a whole email newsletter and editorial. And I was like really learning small business skills that I use right now. And after like a year and a half, 
I was like, I'm the greatest employee of all time. You know, you're like, pump it up for a bit. Uh, I'm the greatest employee that's ever walked on this earth. And I need to work from home three days a week. And he was like, okay, just don't quit. And that's a good lesson. Yeah. And granted, I was working for a good person. But like time and time again, I've worked for companies where like you work your ass off. They don't want to lose you. And so you asking to take a two hour lunch and then work late that day is really actually not a big deal at all. So they let you do it. Now I run podcasts for Pride Media, which is the Advocate Out magazine, and I am the head of my department. And so they trust me to do my job and I do it well. And I also don't like to surprise people. And so um, you'll like this. Before I moved to New York City, I, I told them, I, I like my boss, I looked in the eye and I said, listen, I really value at this job that you pay me to do my job well. You don't pay me to do my job well sitting at my desk. And I said, I really continue. I, I really look forward to continuing that in New York City. And he was like, okay. But I just like to set up expectations. And so I think that's really important. Again, that's an uncomfortable conversation that I didn't realize is uncomfortable because I'm just so practiced at it. It's what makes me a good negotiator for money. These people are like, oh my God, we don't like talking about money. I'm going to lose my pants. And I'm like, yep, it's uncomfortable. I'd like to keep having this conversation though. And so I've got to a place in my career where I tell people like what I need in terms of my schedule and I do everything else. I love that. So as I stated in the beginning, I think creativity is deeply connected to the inner child. So if you and young Jeffrey were standing in the same room looking at each other, what do you think he would say to you and why? The young child to say to me? Yes. Oh my God. Seeing you. Everything you're doing, all the amazing ways you've protected him and you're going on this beautiful journey. What would he say to you and why? I think he would say, how in the world do your eyebrows look this good? Because <laughs> that was a long journey. And... I feel like being gay was the exact same journey for my eyebrows, where I was made fun of all growing up for having massive, bushy eyebrows. And now it's like the biggest compliment I receive all day, every day. It's like my eyebrows. It's the same with being gay. It was like the biggest struggle of my like childhood and early 20s, to be completely honest. And now it's like what I have like made a career as is a professional faggot. You can print that. What would he say? I, I think he would be happy. I don't know like verbally what he'd say. I think that he'd be really psyched at where I've gotten him. I think it would not be what he expected by any means, but like he would be happy with it. I've always done things and not been afraid to fail, be it quitting my first job at Pop Sugar when I was 22. And I remember everyone looked around at me like, why are you quitting? And I was like, because we're all miserable here. And they were like, yes. And I was like, and so I'm leaving. And, they're, and I realized that these people had been there for three and four years and they were miserable and they were going to continue to be miserable. And I'm just not that kind of guy. Um, and so I think that like I've done young baby Jeff proud to be completely honest. And what would you say to him and why? It's going to be fine. Everything, good and bad. Like I wouldn't change one thing because I've learned from every single mistake. And I don't want that to sound like too like cliche, but I genuinely have. I, I mean, I would probably see him, this young kid, and like feel bad. I, I think that I would see someone who like was like hurting and didn't have a lot of confidence and could not have had this conversation that we just had now. Someone who like was afraid to be vulnerable, and it would be a big like reality check for me. Well, 
I love you, Jeff. I'm so inspired by you. I know you're going to really inspire the listeners. And thank you for sharing your time and your story with Unleash. Oh, Lauren, thank you for having me. You're the best. Thank you so much for listening and to my guest, Jeffrey Masters. Check out Jeffrey's podcast, LGBTQ&A on the Luminary app. You can follow him at JeffMasters1 and LGBTQPod on Instagram and check out Prime Media at PrimeMedia.com. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you enjoyed the show, the best way to share that is by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on Apple Podcasts and following it on Spotify. If you really like the show, tell a friend about it and also take a screenshot of yourself listening and share it to your Instagram stories. Tag at Unleashurner Creative and at Lauren LaGrasso and I will repost it to show my gratitude. My wish for you this week is that you seek discomfort. One of the best ways to take fear out of the driver's seat is to level up with it. I believe in you. Talk next week.